You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis 16, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through the whole chapter. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness that the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant And shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar, Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this is God's word to us this morning. Please be seated. Perhaps as you were reflecting on those, on that time to reflect before the reading of God's word, perhaps you were feeling, perhaps this morning you're feeling disillusioned by Christianity. Perhaps this morning you're just giving church one more go, one more chance before you call it quits. 
perhaps the tide of deconstruction is pulling you further and further out. And if you hear one more failure of one more moral faith leader in our country or in this world, you're done. Or maybe you've come in this morning with feelings of shame and fear because you've grown impatient with God. And instead of trusting God's good design for relational intimacy and flourishing, you grew impatient with God and you jumped with both feet into sexual sin. And you are right now in this moment bracing for the impact of those decisions. Or maybe you've been the victim of someone else's sexual sin. Maybe even this morning you are right now working diligently and you don't even know it, but your whole being is trying to soothe the shame that you feel and yet you shouldn't feel because that was done to you. Whether you're experiencing both of those realities, any of those realities, or none of those realities. My prayer is this morning that all of us would encounter under this text before us a God who sees and a God who hears and a God who pursues. And I pray that disillusionment, the disillusionment that you may be feeling and the despair you may be feeling would be replaced. Maybe, maybe in a miraculous way, just all at once, God just does a miraculous healing in your heart. But maybe it's over time. But my prayer is that whether you're feeling disillusioned or you're feeling despairing, God would replace that with joy and faith in your treasure, Jesus Christ. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we are in chapter 16, a very serious and disorienting chapter. As I've wrestled with this chapter, I've gone more and more. It's just heavy. It feels very heavy what happens in chapter 16. We could sort of laugh at it as a bit of a soap opera, you know, a love triangle in the Bible. And we can make jokes about chapter 16, but the reality of it, it's messy, it's dangerous, and it's, it's weighty and disorienting what happens in this text. If you're just joining us, these last couple of chapters in Genesis have, have been a wild ride in and of themselves. First, in chapter 14, we saw Abram's sweeping victory over the kings of the east. And the rescue of his nephew Lot from the, from the clutches of Ketelamur, the king from the east. That was an incredible battle of the kings. In the next week, in chapter 15, we, we saw God establish a unilateral covenant between he and Abram, whereby God alone would stake his own life on the fulfillment of his promise to bring Abram into a land. Abram and his descendants. It was, a, it was a unilateral covenant. It was a remarkable display of God's kindness and grace to Abram and to us. And now in our text this morning, 10 years has passed. 10 years has passed since that great covenant in chapter 15 between God and Abram. And as we'll discover, not only has 10 years passed, but in that 10 years, deep impatience has grown. In the heart of Sarai, Abram's wife. And that impatience led to sinful compromise. 
And let me, this will be our first movement if you're a note taker. Impatience and compromise is our first point. I want you to look at verse 3 under that heading. Impatience and compromise. Verse 3 says, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, rather gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, Sarai is not alone in her impatience. We learned this from last chapter, which we now know was 10 years ago. But Sarai is not alone in her impatience with the Lord. Remember what Abram said in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Abram said to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So, In Abram's impatience, he thought that maybe adoption was going to be the way to secure his lineage. I'll have to adopt Eliezer of Damascus. It's adoption that will secure my offspring. And now here in chapter 16, it's Sarai who is growing impatient with the Lord. It's been 10 years since the promise was made. And now she's thinking that surrogacy is the only way. That is having a child through somebody else's womb. So Abram thought adoption. Ten years later, Sarai thinks surrogacy. And so Sarai hatches a plan to have Hagar. It's more of a scheme. A scheme to have Hagar, her Egyptian servant, carry a baby which would sort of help God out. Sort of help God fulfill his promise to secure an offspring for the land. And before we get all down on Sarai, let me just bring two things to mind that I don't intend to excuse her behavior. Her her behavior is not permissible, but I think her impatience is understandable. So let me bring two things to mind before we disassociate ourselves with Sarai too much. Number one, it can be utterly devastating for couples who are trying to have a family and can't get pregnant. That is true in the ancient East and that is true today. Utterly devastating. I've sat with husbands and wives who are just utterly broken by that. And this is not a sermon, by the way, on the bioethics of surrogacy or in vitro fertilization. This is not that sermon. I am just making the point that the feeling of despair in Sarai, the wife, is understandable. So that's number one. Number two, 10 years is a long time. 10 years is a long time to wait Here's a a quick thought experiment. If you are are tempted to sort of disassociate yourself with Sarah, like who could do such a thing? Just do a little thought experiment this afternoon after church and you're sitting in the line there waiting for your food at In-N-Out Burger. Just see how long it takes for the temptation to sin in your heart comes. Or next time you're in traffic for five minutes. Oh, you know, and we're tempted to, to grow impatient with the Lord. Ten years she waited. 
10 years. Again, I'm not trying to excuse her behavior, but I don't want us to miss the fact that we are more like Sarai than unlike her. We're more like her than unlike her. So much of this scene, maybe it's come into into view, but so much of this scene in chapter 16 is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Like Eve, Sarai extends the sinful scheme to her husband. And like Adam, Abram is far from passive in this exchange. Verse 2 says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And like Adam, he knew better. Abram knew better. He is not a passive agent in this scene. He knew better. And instead of listening to the voice of his covenant Lord, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so there's some common themes between the Garden of Eden and Genesis 16. But there is understandable impatience. Their understandable impatience led to, it started to grow. It started to metastasize. And their impatience led to distrust of the Lord's promise. Impatience led to distrust. And the distrust of the Lord led to compromise, sinful compromise. And this brings us to now the second movement in the story, contempt and jealousy. Look at verse four. And he, that is Abram, went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So that is when Hagar conceived, she looked with contempt upon Sarai. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Surrogacy through a concubine was common practice in the ancient East. What they're doing here is very common. It's not shocking in the ancient East. In fact, having multiple concubines and multiple wives would have been commonplace in ancient Egypt for sure, but in other places as well. But please listen, this is not God's design. As we're going to see this thing, and we already are seeing it start to unravel, the wheels are going to come completely off. We need to understand that although multiple concubines and multiple wives is commonplace in the ancient East, it is not God's design. Even if procreation, even if it's good intentions, having multiple wives is a sinful recipe for disaster. And God warns of this all over the scriptures, not least of which happens in the very first wedding between one man and one woman in Genesis chapter two. Notice with me on the screen, Genesis two twenty four. Therefore, a man, one man, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, one wife, and they shall become one flesh. One man 
and one woman is the design for relational flourishing and intimacy. Full stop. When human beings with good or bad intentions alter God's intended design for relational flourishing, the results are always catastrophic in the family and then in the society. It is a very delicate design. It is not meant to be tampered with. And when it's tampered with, the results are never good. This goes for polygamy, which is what is happening in this text. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage, including pornography. This includes same-sex marriage and so forth. Relational intimacy is a delicate design. If I can come down just a little bit, I'm feeling a little hot here. Relational intimacy is a delicate design and God warns us throughout the scriptures not to tamper with his masterpiece. Now listen to me. God doesn't want us to tamper with his masterpiece, not because God is opposed to pleasure and joy. God doesn't want us to tamper with his design because the exact opposite is the truth, is the truth. God is for human pleasure. God is for human flourishing. God is for your happiness. God is not a killjoy. He's for your joy. Instead, God prohibits this kind of behavior because he's for you. And what, especially in our day, but this has been going on for a long time, what may begin with, if you start to tamper with it, what may be, begin with euphoria and may feel like euphoria and freedom quickly dissolves and deteriorates into chaos. And God doesn't want that for his creation. He wants flourishing, wholeness and happiness for you. And that's exactly what we see going on in our text This is a remarkable failure of Abram and Sarai. This is a a remarkable failure for the father of faith. For the one who just 10 years previous had this unilateral covenant, this theophany take place before his eyes. Raise your hand if you've had a theophany take place before you. Okay, so it's a rare thing that happens. And the influence that Abram has and Sarai and the authority that they have over Hagar and this is how they wield their influence and their authority. This is nothing short of a massive failure by the patriarch and the matriarch. They have discarded God's good design for relational flourishing through impatience. And now, now they've brought Hagar in. And Hagar is an Egyptian servant. She's not a Jew by birth. She was probably acquired when they were in Egypt back in chapter 12. She's a hired hand. 
She's an Egyptian servant and she's brought in now into the rebellion of Father Abraham and Sarai. As one commentator points out, the irony of all of this, quote, down in Egypt, that's back in chapter 12, trustless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian Pharaoh. Remember that. This is my sister, not my wife. Remarkable failure. Trustless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian Pharaoh. Now in Canaan, untrusting Sarai gave Abram over to her Egyptian servant. When you look at a a remarkable failure from a leader like this, it, it can be very disorienting to think, man, Father Abraham, Sarai, they saw the covenant. They, they, they heard from God himself such privilege, such authority, and such feet of clay. This reminds us of Paul's word. Be, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. We all have feet of clay. Verse 4 tells us that after she had conceived, Hagar looked at Sarai with contempt. What does that mean? It means that she no longer, that is Hagar, no longer looked at Sarai with respect. The word in in the Hebrew literally means she looked lighter at Sarai. So before it happened, Sarai was the boss. She was the matriarch. She was sort of in charge. She's the the wife of Abram. She had a weight to her. But after the relations between Hagar and Abram, and after she conceived, the text says she didn't have the same kind of respect for Sarai. And this was humiliating to Sarai. This look of lightness humiliated Sarai. And that humiliation led to anger and resentment. It didn't lead to repentance. What ought to have happened, what should have happened, is when she saw that look of contempt, that lightness, that Sarai would have looked in the mirror and said, Oh God, I have failed miserably. I have brought this upon myself. I have schemed a plan outside of your promise. I grew impatient. Forgive me, Father. But her anger turned to resentment, not repentance. She was blinded by her anger. Have you ever been so angry that you just can't see straight? And she begins to look outside at somebody else to blame. Somebody else must be the cause of my humiliation. And so who does Sarai blame? Well, first she blames her husband, chapter, or rather, verse 5. Look at verse 5 and following. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave, I was so generous, I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Her anger is not permissible, but again, it's understandable. This is a woman who has grieved for 10 years that she can't give birth. 
And now the first time Hagar and, and her husband have relations, she conceives and she's humiliated and she's embarrassed. And now the look from Hagar is just, is just adding insult to injury. And she's angry. And she's unable to see her own sin in all of this. But she rightly points out Abram's failure. Abram failed in this, massively failed in this. Again, like Adam, he's not some passive player in this. This is Abram, the patriarch. In fact, one commentator writes, he says, quote, Logically, Sarai was wrong to place all of the blame on Abram. After all, it was her idea. This was her plan. But actually, she was right. He was the patriarch, Abram. He was the head of the house. God had spoken directly to him, not to her. He should never have allowed the situation. Abram was truly responsible for the wrong she was suffering, end quote. Abram should have stopped this whole thing. He should have refused, and he didn't. And the fallout is on him as well. And he's experiencing the consequences of his cowardice and his sin. And instead of Abram repenting, it, gets, it goes from bad to worse. This is one thing I'm just going to repeat throughout this sermon. Sin does not happen in a vacuum. Do you understand that phrase? I know we hear it a lot. But I remember growing up hearing that phrase. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. What does that mean? What happens in a vacuum? When we say sin doesn't happen in a vacuum or this situation doesn't happen in a vacuum, what we're saying is it's not an isolated incident. It didn't just happen and then get sucked up into the vacuum and didn't affect anything else. Nothing to see here, nothing happened. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens and then it affects everything around it. That's why, if you're curious, why God is so serious about repenting is, is because he knows that the effects of sin are manifold. They keep growing. They are never just this kind of one thing, one fixture on the wall. Oh, I was so young, whatever. No, it, it grows and it affects others. And the consequences are sometimes endless. And that's what's happening here. It's just growing and it gets grosser and grosser. Instead of repenting, instead of Abram going, you're right, you're right, Sarai, I should have stopped this. This is on me. I have the responsibility of being the head of this household. I'm the patriarch of, the, of this nation that has been promised by God. I should have stopped this whole thing. I repent to you. I repent to Hagar and I repent to God. Please forgive me. I am broken. He doesn't do that. He fails. And instead, Abram instructs Sarai to use her power over the Egyptian servant to humiliate her. Look at verse 6. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Literally, your servant is within your dominance. You can dominate her. 
Then it says, then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she, that is Hagar, fled. From impatience to distrust, to compromise and sin, to contempt and jealousy, to now abuse of power. This is textbook abuse of power. She's in your dominance. She's dependent upon you for food. Do to her as you please. The word harshly, it says, Sarah dealt harshly with her. The end of verse six there. The word for harshly in verse six means to bow someone down. So she took her, her position of power and she made Hagar bow down. Because Sarai was humiliated and because Abram was humiliated, they were going to humiliate someone else. And they decided to humiliate Hagar, the Egyptian slave. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. When we rebel against God and instead we feed our worldly desires, our fleshly desires, when we grow impatient with God and that impatience grows to distrust and sin, it's not just our relationship to God that suffers, but our relationship with others get affected. That's why Paul says before Christians, before you take the body and the blood of Christ in your hands, discern the body. Make sure that you're not at war with somebody in here. Make sure that you're at peace as much as possible. You're at peace with them. You're going after them. You're trying to have coffee and and other things to, to be at peace. Make sure because this stuff grows. And beloved, I wish I knew this. I wish I knew this as a mere spectator only. I wish I knew this was true because I saw it in everybody else. But the reality is my own sin has hurt people. The reality is I have abused my power and my influence as a head of my home to hurt my wife or my kids or hurt some of you. I wish I could say I've done this as a mere spectator, but I know what this species of of being humiliated is like and wanting to return that to others. The absolute worst thing that we could do in here is, is to hear this sort of thing unravel, this mess, and go, oh, I really wonder who Pastor Dylan is preaching at this morning. Like, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really wondering who should be convicted by this story. Or I'm really glad my spouse is here to hear this story. I'm really glad my husband or my wife is. That's the worst thing we can do when a heavy convicting text is before us. The absolute best thing we could do is say, oh God, search my heart. I'm more like Sarai and Abram than I'd like to admit. Search my heart, God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Have I sinned against anyone that I need to go and apologize for? And I wonder what kind of church we would be. I wonder what kind of church we would be if that kind of honesty and humility broke out among us.
think we would be a beautiful place. I think we would be a safer place than we are right now. By God's grace, I think this is a beautiful place. I love being one of your pastors. By God's grace, I think this is a safe place. But I think we can grow. I think we can grow a lot in this kind of honest, humble culture. What kind of freedom would be in here? I'm not trying to guilt anybody for being late, but I'm just saying like, if this were the church that I was going to, that was this kind of church, beautiful and trustworthy and safe, I couldn't wait to be there. To be real and honest and transparent. I couldn't wait to be there to hear when the next potluck is coming because I want to be around those people. But if we're going to be a church that just says, oh, the Sarai's and the Abrams. Oh, mercy, Lord. Have mercy on them out there. We'll never get there. We'll never get there. Oh, God. Do that kind of work in here. Finally, after Hagar is cast out, she flees to the desert. She flees to the wasteland, which must have been a metaphor for how she was feeling inside. I want us to see in our final point, as we end, who shows up. Look at who shows up in this text. Look at, look at verses 7 through 10. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. <laughs> oh, verse 10. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is so like the Lord to send Hagar back into the place of conflict. (laughs) Honestly, if I'm counseling Hagar, that... That's going to be the last thing I'm going to say is go back to the place of abuse and trauma. And in some instances, in a lot of instances, that's not wise counsel to just go back to abuse and trauma. But Hagar would not return the same as when she went. Some have suggested this is a powerful moment between the angel of the Lord and and Hagar. Some have suggested that this is yet another theophany in the Genesis narrative. That this is a visible manifestation of God himself. That this isn't just a mere messenger from the Lord, but this is God himself. And they come to that conclusion because in verse 10, the angel speaks in the first person. It says, the angel of the Lord also said to her, 
I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. This angel is speaking in the first person for the Lord himself. Angels don't do that. Angels know their place. Thus saith the Lord, the angel would say, your, your offspring will be numbered and, and multiplied. But this angel speaks in the first person. I think it's compelling that this is indeed a theophany. Additionally, Hagar herself seems to identify this angel as a visible manifestation of God. Look at verse 13. So she, that is Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So it seems compelling to me that this is indeed a theophany. This is God himself visually being manifested through the angel of the Lord. Furthermore, some have suggested that this is not just a theophany, but a Christophany. A Christophany, what is that? That is a visible manifestation of the second member of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate, before Jesus put on flesh, the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Now, I'm a little bit more reluctant to go there because I don't see a whole lot of scriptural evidence for that, but I there is something that inclines me to that. And I just full disclosure, take this as a, a grain of salt. It just feels like Jesus. If I can say that, I don't say that often feels like, but this encounter between Hagar and the servant of the Lord feels so Christ-like, doesn't it? Notice in, in verse uh, eight, listen to see if you hear the tone of Jesus in verse eight. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? According to one historian, listen to this claim. Verse eight of Genesis 16 is the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name. Um, that is quite a claim, and I should have the name of this, the historian. I'll get that on realm. But it is, this is the only known instance in the ancient Near Eastern literature, in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, where the deity addresses a woman by name. Now, I don't know if this is for sure a Christophany, a manifestation of Christ himself in the Old Testament. But it sure sounds like my Jesus. Remember that scene after the resurrection. I think it's in Matthew's gospel. It might be in Luke's when Mary is there and the tomb is empty and the angels are there and they, and they say he, he, he's gone. And she goes, well, tell me where they've taken his body. Tell me where they've taken his body. I, I need to go. I need to be with my Lord. Tell me where they've taken him. And they said, he, he's, he's, he's no longer dead. He's, he's risen. And about that moment, she feels a presence behind her. You remember this moment in the, in the garden and, and she turns around, but her eyes are still full of tears 
And so she can't make out who this is. And supposing he's the gardener, she says, tell me where you've taken him. And what does Jesus say? Mary. He calls her by name. And she says, she falls down at his feet. Rabboni, she recognizes him as he says her name. This sounds like my Jesus. Jesus loved to break the cultural norms, particularly as it relates to dignifying women. And this is the first instance in all of ancient Eastern literature where a deity calls a woman by name. That's our God. Whatever the case, whether this is Jesus or not, we know for sure that God is after Hagar. He sees her and he hears her. Her affliction is not lost on the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Notice that. She's, a, she's an Egyptian slave And her plight is not lost on the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Oh, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, God would go. Look at verse 11 and following as we close. And the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which, by the way, means God hears. That's what Ishmael means, which... But which means every time she would call Ishmael, Ishmael, get over here, you're late for dinner. (laughs) She would be reminded of the God who hears and the God who heard her cry for help. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, not only is this the first time in, in the ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name, but also, as another writes, Hagar is the first woman to receive a birth annunciation and the first woman to receive promise from the Lord. Sarah received a promise indirectly through Abram. Hagar receives her promise directly from the Lord. Your seed will be multiplied. This is an incredible moment of grace given to someone who has been afflicted, abused, and sent running for her life. This text shows us that God sees her, that God hears her, and God pursues her in her affliction. And God tells her the truth. The consequences of the rebellion between Abram and Sarai are going to be far reaching. God tells her the truth. Look at verse 12 and following. He, that is Ishmael, the reminder to you that God hears, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And this would prove out true in redemptive history. Ishmael would continue to be a thorn in the side of Isaac, who becomes the firstborn of Sarai and Abram. Ishmael would be a thorn in his side for as long as he lived. The Ishmaelites, when you read further on, when we get there in Genesis in a while, 
the Ishmaelites will be in Egypt and they will be the ones who oppress and convict Joseph, who is falsely accused in Egypt. It will be the Ishmaelites. They will continue to be a thorn in the side. They will continue to be at war with God's people. It's true, the Ishmaelites would settle in northern Arabia, where in the 6th century, not too long ago, Abram's Muhammad would claim his descendants came from one of Ishmael's 12 sons. So to this day, this warring conflict has manifested its consequences from one couple's rebellion 4,000 years ago. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. But despite the hard news, Hagar was still overcome by the grace shown to her by the Lord. Look at verse 13 to the end. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Listen to this. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Two categories that we need to hear from the mouth of Hagar right now. You are a God of seeing. You are a God who is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows all and he sees all, but that's not enough for Hagar. Notice she doesn't just have that theological category that God sees all. She also says, you are a God who looks after me. You not just see, you don't just see everything. You see me and you care for me. This is massive that we understand these categories that he sees all and he looks after me. Verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Berlahairoi and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the, son, the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, circling back to where we began this morning, I, I don't know who you identify with this morning. Maybe this morning you are overcome by grief and shame because you have not trusted God's design for relational intimacy and instead you sought pleasure outside of his intended design for flourishing. The call, the gracious call, from God to you this morning. If you're, if you're bracing for the impact of that decision, you're bracing for the judge to come down with his gavel on you. If you're a Christian, you're not going to get condemnation, but you are going to get a father who loves you and doesn't want you to suffer under the consequences of your own rebellion. And so the word to you, if you've grown impatient with God and you've run towards sexual sin, the call is to repent. That is to change your mind, metanoia, to change your mind about that behavior, which changes your direction and your affection and to go the other way. I'm no longer going that way. I've changed my mind about who Jesus is. He's the God who sees me. He's the God who hears me. He's the God who pursues me and I'm going after him. The call is to repent so that times of refreshing may come. Maybe this morning you've been caught up in someone else's rebellion. Maybe you've been the victim of sexual abuse. 
or some kind of abuse. And maybe you're, you're bracing, you're soothing yourself, trying to get rid of this shame that follows you everywhere. I want you to see Jesus Christ pursuing you, calling you by your first name and saying, I see you, I hear you. That is not your shame. That is not your name. I've given you a new name. Maybe, maybe you're disillusioned and it, maybe it may be connected to abuse. Maybe you're disillusioned with Christianity altogether. Maybe you've, someone you greatly respect is declining or deconstructing, which is the term now. Maybe like Hagar, you're running from trauma and pain and it feels like you're in a desert wasteland. If you just hear of one more moral failing from one more prominent Christian leader, you're cashing in your chips. Oh, I pray you would encounter the God who sees you, the God who hears you, and the God who pursues you. See, beloved, the cross of Christ both humbles the proud and it lifts up the faint-hearted. And at times, from week to week, I need both effects of the cross to humble my pride and to lift me up because I'm exhausted or faint-hearted. The cross does both. It humbles us because the cross says, it was my sin that put Jesus there. And the cross also lifts us up because the cross also says, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I belong to him. And so, friends, beloved, may the God who sees and the God who hears compel us all to trust him, even when his promises seem distant and impossible, even when it feels like a wasteland, God is at work. He is pursuing his own. And may God who sees and hears console our broken hearts when the pain of life seems unbearable.